You're listening to AshCast, the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation podcast. On Thursday, April 19th, the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation hosted a Democracy in Hard Places seminar titled Islamist Emergence and Mobilization in Central Asia. Muslim Democrats and Militant Jihadis, Kathleen Collins, Associate Professor, University of Minnesota Department of Political Science, spoke. Scott Mainwaring, Jorge Paulo Lehman Professor of Brazil Studies, moderated. Hi. Welcome, everyone. Uh, I'm Scott Mainwaring, and my wonderful colleague Tarek Masood and I have coordinated this series this year called Democracy in Hard Places. We've had a great time working together. We're grateful to see everyone here, and we've had really some wonderful speakers and great turnouts. Uh, and this is probably the last event of this academic year. Um, I'm supposed to say that this event is on the record, so if you say anything deeply embarrassing, we'll be able to blackmail you. Um, so just a word of caution about that. Um, we like to post the, the, uh, the events on the, on the Ash Center website. Um, so um, speaking about democracy in hard places, what a hard place we're going to hear about today, Central Asia, um, Kathleen has been doing research in Central Asia for a very long time. And it's not the easiest place or the safest place in the world to do research. So she wrote an awesome first book uh, based on her research in that region, Clan Politics and Regime Transition in Central Asia. Uh, and doing research in that region of the world has gotten harder and harder rather than easier and easier as time has progressed. Um, Kathleen Collins is a, uh, you know, an excellent comparative political, social, uh, political scientist at the University of Minnesota. She's an associate professor. Um, we're very pleased to have her here today for her talk, Islamist Emergence and Mobilization in Central Asia. Thanks so much for coming. Thank you, Scott. <laughs> Thank you very much. Good afternoon. It's a real pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me. Um, it's really an honor, so I appreciate the opportunity. What I will present today is a part of my overall book project, uh, which is still a work in progress, so I do welcome your questions and comments and feedback. My book explores two simple but important questions. First, what causes the emergence of Islamist movements in Eurasia? Islamist mobilization during and after the Soviet Union's collapse, especially in Tajikistan and Uzbekistan, took most scholars by surprise. There was a widespread assumption that 70 years of Soviet atheist indoctrination and educational and economic modernization had transformed society and decimated Islam. Support for secular constitutions and laws was assumed to be widespread and stable. Further, Muslims in the Soviet Union were largely cut off from the rest of the Muslim world during the Soviet era. And yet, Islamism was the major form of political opposition in the 1990s in Tajikistan's transition and civil war, and the Islamic party there has become the major, Islamist, the major opposition party since the war ended in 1997. Secondly, and relatedly, uh, different Islamist movements achieve vastly different levels of mobilization. 
what leads to higher, more durable mass mobilization? Few scholars have examined the huge variation in support for Islamist movements. Of the many groups that have emerged, only a few have become mass movements, and even those vary significantly in their level of support. Now, I'll start by saying that following other scholars, I define Islamism or political Islam as a modern political ideology or movement that uh, seeks to make Islam part of the state in some way. A range of scholars of the past few decades have offered multiple approaches to explaining Islamist movements. Various culturalist approaches, of, of which I'm sure you're quite familiar, ranging from Ernest Gilner to Samuel Huntington, have emphasized Islamic theology, Islam's inevitable radicalism, and clash with the West. Other culturalists explain Islamists as a societal reaction to globalization or Western values. Modernization theorists tend to see Islamism as the result of a lack of development or economic insecurity. And a variety of materialist approaches, by contrast, argue that Islam plays little, if any, role in Islamism. Rather, economic and political incentives or demands drive Islamist mobilization. Still others, particularly in Central Asia, contend that Islamism is the result of nationalism. It's really all about nationalism, not religion. In most of these theories, in general, despite their, their enormous contributions to studying the phenomena of Islamism in other regions, either religion explains everything or it tends to explain nothing. Culturalists cannot explain the variation in Islamist emergence, while materialist approaches cannot explain the timing or variation of these movements in Central Asia. Nor can these approaches explain the content of Islamist goals. As Sabah Mahmoud has argued, we need to take the religious values and identities that Muslims proclaim seriously, rather than assume that uh, their discourse is a mask for other interests. The region that I'm going to be talking about, as Scott mentioned, is uh, Central Eurasia. Central Asia and the Caucasus are the former Muslim republics of the former Soviet states where I've done my research. My study involves four cases, country cases, in Soviet and post-Soviet Muslim Eurasia, Tajikistan, Uzbekistan, and uh, Kyrgyzstan in Central Asia, and Azerbaijan in the Caucasus. And in my book, I also touch on Chechnya and Dagestan as well. Using cross-case historical comparison, I'm studying cases of high, moderate, and low mobilization. Tajikistan has the highest uh, mobilization in the region, and Kyrgyzstan exhibits the lowest. I examine each country case diachronically over time, from the early Soviet era to the first wave of open mobilization in the late 80s and 90s, to a second wave of mobilization from the late 90s to the present. My sources uh, include both quantitative and qualitative sources that I've gathered uh, for my analysis for about 10 years during field work in each case and from Moscow as well. I used Soviet archival materials and conducted oral histories uh, related to the Soviet period and the experience of Islam then. My qualitative method also includes hundreds of interviews with political elites, both Islamists and government officials, and with societal elites, including village elders, clan elders, notables, and mullahs. With my Central Asian research team in each country, we also conducted 90 focus groups in representative regions of, of each of the country cases, and we conducted four original surveys. So my study includes elite interviews with at least some Islamist ideologues and activists. Here we have members, leaders of the, uh, the Islamic Renaissance Party in Tajikistan, the IRPT. Uh, I interviewed a number of these leaders. Unfortunately, uh, today many of them are actually in jail. Uh, interviews with 
uh, Uzbek Islamist leaders proved to be far more difficult uh, since most of the time of my research were already in exile in Afghanistan or Pakistan. But I relied extensively on uh, their multiple writings and publications as well as their online propaganda, which is quite extensive. In addition to the elite uh, level of analysis, I also sought to get, get a sense of the social basis of support or lack of support for Islamism in Central Asia. And so to do this, the study, as I mentioned, included focus groups as well as multiple interviews with societal elites, religious leaders, and elders, such as these individuals in Tajikistan. Let me turn now briefly to the theoretical framework that I developed to explain the phenomenon and pattern of Islamism across the Central Eurasian cases. First, I begin with the empirical claim that religion is an identity that persists in many societies, even in the modern era. In Central Eurasia, Islam has a centuries-long pervasive presence. My oral histories and interviews and very rich recent work by anthropologists demonstrate the persistence of Islam across this region, despite repressive Soviet policies. Given this, I ask whether and how Islam or Muslim identity is connected to the rise of Islamist movements. My approach largely draws on insights from two literatures. First, I turn to the ideational and constructivist scholarship that takes ideas and identity seriously. In many societies, religion, I posit, matters because it's a defining feature of social life and meaning. It provides both personal and communal identity. As constructivist scholarship uh, has suggested, identity is not fixed, it's not uniform, but understanding religious identity as potentially deep and persistent but also socially constructed helps us to understand its potential for politicization under certain conditions. Many religions also consist of a set of ideas about morality, justice, and community. Those ideas may have political implications, yet religion is not inevitably politicized, much less radical. Rather, Islam and other religions are multivocal, to borrow Al-Stefan's words. Religious leaders may be quietist and insular, or the religion's ideas may become the basis of political theologies that promote or influence political activism in the name of religious ideas of justice. Moreover, Islam, much like Christianity, is associated with various forms of religious capital. Sacred authority, rooted in religious symbols, lineage, and knowledge, gives communal legitimacy to leaders and movements. Religious communal ties can be strong bonds that facilitate mobilization and religious organizations provide both symbolic as well as material resources. With this conceptualization of religion then, we can understand why religious repression politicizes Islamic identity and motivates activism, even under great risk. And in Eurasia, these risks include arrest, sentences from 15 years to life, torture, death, and really little likelihood of any eventual political success. Second, I draw on the contentious politics literature in political science and sociology, which emphasizes the dynamic process of contention between a movement and the state. This scholarship highlights the role of political opportunity, framing, and networks. I build on and also adapt these insights to an authoritarian context in which any form of opposition mobilization is high-risk activity. Islamist ideologues are in contention with a repressive, secular, authoritarian state. They seek to advance a political theology that is a set of ideas about a religion's relation to politics and how religion can bring justice in the political sphere. 
modern Islamist ideologies want to define, want Islam to define the state and public sphere in some way. Islamic identity and ideas become central to the movement's motivation and political goals. Political theology motivates and guides their activism. Islamist political movements, however, are not inevitable or uniform. Rather, activists are influenced by or construct particular political theologies based on their particular ideas about Islam's role in politics. So again, underlying this process is my assumption that religion matters, and so religious repression matters. These actors are pursuing Islamist goals in response to religious repression. They are not propagating secular nationalism, communism, or for the most part, secular democracy, as we shall see. Islamist emergence and mobilization is usually a long-term uh, process. The process in Eurasia, as I've sketched out here in figure one, goes through three general phases. At time one, the secular authoritarian state, the Soviet state, represses Islam, and this sets off a cycle of contention, more repression, and typically political and economic exclusion from power. Despite submission to state control, religious identity is at least latently politicized in this period. At time two, there's a shift in associational space, uh, which I define uh, as the growth de facto uh, in any civic, social, or personal space outside of government control. This triggers a spread of both underground religious activism and also ideas about political theology. Where religious contention and exclusion had been high, activists are more likely to be motivated by Islamist ideas. They become the ideologues who begin underground organization in pursuit of Islamist political goals. At time three, a further shift in associational space or even an exogenous shock triggers Islamist ideologues to move to open mass mobilization, promoting their Islamic theology to the public and openly challenging the state. For the rest of the talk, then, I will elaborate the process of Islamist emergence and mobilization and then turn to their levels of mobilization in the cases of Tajikistan and Uzbekistan, focusing primarily on the Islamic Renaissance Party in Tajikistan and Adalat and then the Islamic <coughs> movement of Uzbekistan. Soviet state policy, I argue, beginning with the Bolshevik Revolution, is the root cause of Islamist emergence in Eurasia. Communism abolished mosques, abolished Islamic courts, the waqf, and madrasas. It forcibly unveiled women, it imprisoned thousands of Muslim religious leaders, and it established atheism through secular education. The Tajik and Uzbek republics were the epicenter of this assault on Islam. Local resistance and contention led to political exclusion of anyone or any community still deemed religious, even by the late Soviet era. Many of my respondents refer to the Soviet era as the Red Terror. According to Haji Akbar Turajanzadeh, who is the former head Qazi of uh, Tajikistan and one of the leaders of the, uh, the broad Islamic opposition movement in the 1990s, according to Qazi Akbar, when the Red Terror began, they turned mosques into palaces for sheep and cattle. My grandfather was sent to a gulag labor camp in Siberia. Islamic culture and education suffered tremendous losses. The horrors of Bolsheviks began to destroy everything, to implant idolatry. Uh, likewise, uh, uh, Mohammed Nazar from the IRPT said that communism was political extremism, secular extremism. And the leader of the Adalat and then the IMU movement, uh, Tahir Yildash, 
said that Stalin's repression of the Muslim scholars was the root of the opposition. Repression politicizes Muslim identity, but it's an increase in associational space, particularly a shift from a more totalitarian state to a slightly softer authoritarian one, that leads to the second phase of this process by allowing limited religious revival. In particular, in the 1970s, Brezhnev's indirect control of the Central Asian republics de facto meant that there was more space to gather underground, and especially in rural areas. It also meant the growth of state-run exchanges with Middle Eastern theologians and students. Together, these allowed the diffusion of new political theologies into Central Asia. Kaziak Bar recalled that these opportunities and ideas opened our eyes to our repression. Associational space was again marginally increasing at the time of the Soviet collapse in 1991. And despite high post-Soviet repression, that minimal associational space has de facto persisted, largely due to more open borders and an influx of Muslim missionaries and religious study opportunities in the Middle East and Pakistan. Throughout these periods, this increased space leads to a diffusion of new political theologies, challenging the prevalent quietism of the Soviet era. Then in the 1970s to 80s, Tajik and Uzbek underground religious students, known as the Young Mullahs, were driven by animosity to Soviet atheism. They believed in the need to purify society and to Islamicize society. They were influenced by Islamist political theology, largely from the Muslim Brotherhood, and by the example of the Afghan Mujahideen. They even began to activate political activism and to talk about jihad. As Deputy IRPT Chairman uh, Haid said, they read the books of Saeed Qutb, Maududi, and Hassan al-Banna. No one spoke about this openly, but the sources of our political thinking were closer to the Muslim Brotherhood than Hindustani. <coughs> Hindustani was a, a widely renowned Central Asian theologian who had long advocated political quietism under Soviet power. Likewise, IRPT leader Mullah Saeed Abdullah Nuri said that it was an atheist regime. We were always under the KGB's watchful eye, pursuit, and pressure. That pressure sparked the idea of Islamic awakening and freedom. After over a decade in the underground, young Tajik mullahs shifted to party formation. Mullah Nuri, in the center here, became their spiritual leader. He had been imprisoned in Siberia for several years in the 80s, and upon returning, he and others founded the Islamic Renaissance Party in 1990. Yet how do we get from a handful of Islamist ideologues in the underground to open mass mobilization? Motivated by religious repression and political theology, Tajik religious ideologues strategically took advantage of increasing associational space during the Soviet collapse. The RIPT shifted to open mass protest in 1991. They demanded legalization as an Islamic party uh, and the end of the atheist regime. Mass mobilization took the form of sustained popular protests for months and hunger strikes. When the communist regime ultimately cracked down, civil war ensued. For the next five years, the IRPT led a broad Islamic movement from Afghanistan in war against the Tajik regime. After the peace agreement, the IRPT became the only Islamic party in Tajikistan, or in all of Central Asia, to be legal. From 1999 through 2015, they operated as an opposition party and contested elections, even though these elections were increasingly controlled and rigged by uh, the authoritarian regime of President Rahmon. In 2015, President Rahmon's government banned the Islamic Party again, uh, calling it terrorist and extremist. 
Most of its activists have since been imprisoned or are in hiding in exile. Party chairman Muhyiddin Kabiri uh, recently said that the party continues to engage in social activism in Turkey, where it's trying to resettle thousands of its party members who fled Tajikistan. Yet Kabiri himself also admits that by 2017, some 500 to 3,000 Tajiks, many of them former party members, had actually joined ISIS, giving up on peaceful democratic means in Tajikistan. I'll treat Islamist emergence in Uzbekistan somewhat more briefly since it really parallels the Tajik case during the Soviet era. In the late 1980s, the Adala, or Justice Movement, was organized by some young Uzbek mullahs, uh, and they formed as a, uh, in the open around 1990 and 1991. They demanded an open protest that Karimov, President Karimov of Uzbekistan, create an Islamic state. Karimov instead cracked down in 1992 and drove them into exile. This briefly quelled the Islamist movement in Uzbekistan. By the late 1990s, however, a new intense wave of religious repression began. The Uzbek government increasingly targeted a leading opposition or independent imams, especially those whose teachings had inspired Adalat. Thousands of ordinary Muslims were arrested, sometimes merely for having a beard. They were tried in show trials reminiscent of the Stalin era, and they were often subjected to torture. Meanwhile, in Afghanistan next door, radical political theologies continued to spread among the Uzbek exiles, particularly the Taliban's militant Salafism. The result of these conditions was renewed Islamist mobilization in Uz by the Uzbeks. In late 1998, Tahir al-Dash, first founder of Adalat and then uh, the founder of the IMU, or the Islamic Movement of Uzbekistan, um, organized these Uzbeks in, uh, in exile from Afghanistan. Rectifying religious repression under the Uzbek regime was their central motivation. Yildash's interviews, his sermons online, and multiple IMU publications, like these ones, make this clear. So in this particular publication, the author writes, Greetings, people in dungeons, innocent and oppressed people suffering tyranny. Don't say the refugees are weak and asleep. When God wishes it, millions will sacrifice themselves. The enemies of Islam are committing savage deeds in Uzbekistan. They are torturing Muslims to keep them from their faith. The IMU declared its central goal to be President Uzbekistan's overthrow and the creation of an Islamic state in Uzbekistan. Banned at home, the IMU has been operating from abroad for both Afghanistan and Pakistan in recent years. It has periodically waged attacks on Uzbekistan's borders, occasionally inside Uzbekistan and inside Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan as well. But the movement has become increasingly influenced by the even more radical ideas of Al-Qaeda and the Afghani and Pakistani Taliban. In the mid-2000s, the IMU evolved into a transnational jihadist movement aimed not only at the Uzbek government, but also at defeating the U.S. in Afghanistan. They have waged dozens of assaults on NATO forces in northern Afghanistan in particular, and on Pakistani government and civilian targets. They began advocating a caliphate rather than an Uzbek Islamic state. In 2015 and 2016, factions of the IMU uh, actually pledged allegiance to ISIS. So I'd like to turn now to my second research question. Why don't all Islamist movements have equal success in mobilizing, even in the same political context? High mobilization entails a large number of activists and mass participation in significant protests. It also entails the durability of the movement over time. 
the level of mobilization across Islamist movements actually varies greatly. High mobilization cannot be assumed, I argue, despite shared Muslim values. Drawing on my theoretical framework, I point to three variables that are central to explaining higher mobilization in these cases. Islamist movements that possess religious capital have high ideational congruence with society and are embedded in local and trans-communal networks are more likely to achieve higher and more durable mobilization. Religious capital involves sacred authority or the legitimacy accorded to individuals on the basis of their spiritual role and knowledge. It also involves close ties amongst members of a religious group, formal or informal. By ideational congruence, I mean Islamist activists need to take global Islamist ideas and localize them or adapt them to local political concerns and even local Islamic norms of a particular context. Networks are informal personal webs of relations, relationships. They can be local or transcommunal. Although local ones tend to be denser, like clans, transcommunal networks are critical to mobilization on a national scale. The IRPT is a case, I'd argue, of relatively high mobilization, certainly for the post-Soviet context. Party membership estimates in the early 90s ranged from about 30,000 to 50,000. This may sound small, but notably this was 10 to 20 times higher than the secular democratic or secular nationalist parties, and continues to be. Uh, ten, uh, thousands to tens of thousands participated in sustained open protests in 1991 and 1992, and when the war erupted, the movement's militants numbered about eight to 14,000. And about 200,000 followed the IRPT into exile in Afghanistan, where they were governed by the broad Islamic coalition. After the war, membership had clearly fallen off for a number of years, and it took about a decade for the numbers to climb again. And yet, for, for almost four decades now, the party has been durable. How do we explain the relatively high level of mobilization in Tajikistan? The first element is rooted in the IRPT's religious capital. In Tajik society, sacred authority has a very strong symbolic role. Most of my interview respondents discussed mullahs, imams, and religious teachers as highly respected societal figures. Such figures are typically embedded in dense religious ties. In the 1980s and 90s, the IRPT's religious capital rested on two Islamic movement leaders, Mullah Nuri and Qazi Akbar. Mullah Saeed Abdullah Nuri came from a respected religious family. They were teachers of Islamic learning in the underground. Nuri was even given the honorific title of Saeed. Nuri, like his grandfather, was imprisoned for his religious teaching. Qazi Akbar came from the Qadiriya Sufi lineage and, had a and from a family of highly revered Sufi teachers. He also had an important organizational role as of 1989 when he was appointed as head Qazi of the Republic. He reopened dozens of once illegal mosques. Under his influence, Sufi leaders led hunger strikes in Dushanbe in 1992. Together with Nuri, the Qazi brought legitimacy that helped to build a broad Islamic coalition. In the post-Civil War period, the IRPT has renewed its efforts at mass mobilization, largely under the efforts of the now chairman, uh, uh, Muhyiddin Kabiri, whom you see here. Uh, however, the movement has struggled to maintain support. Nori died of cancer in 2006, and this was a blow to the movement's spiritual authority. Qazi Akbar also split with the movement over some of its decisions. The new party chairman, uh, Kabiri, has had a secular education, 
Uh, and as you can see from his more secular appearance, uh, he's associated with what he calls Euro-Islam. Kabiri initially lacked the sacred authority in the religious ties of his predecessors and is increasingly out of touch with a much more religious Tajik base. <coughs> a second dimension of the IRPT's early strength was its high ideational congruence with much of society. In the 1990s, the IRPT had adapted to the local context and it was able to build a broader coalition with mainstream Muslims. The IRPT softened many of its original Salafist ideas. Instead, it promoted national Persian Tajik Islam. The identity intersected with the ideas of the national democratic movement at the time as well. The IRPT also shunned its open discussion, any sort of open discussion of an Islamic state. It made only vague references to such a state as being something in the future, uh, possibly in 25 or 50 years if members um, were to uh, endorse it. Instead, the Islamists endorsed a parliamentary system with elections, and after the war, they proved themselves to, be, to um, be willing to compete in those elections peacefully, even despite the regime's violations. The IRPT has continued to adapt to local ideas and issues rather than adopting Salafism and foreign goals. This table summarizes the results of 19 focus groups um, that we conducted in 2005 and 2010. On the left side are some of the key issues advocated by the IRPT, and on the right side, we see the percentage of focus groups in which the majority of participants uh, supported or agreed with the issue. Focus groups revealed strong societal support for certain IRPT core issues, including Islamic education, uh, which is still illegal, legalizing the hijab, na uh, supporting a national as opposed to a, a Salafist form of Islam, a greater Islamic role in law, and cleansing the government of corruption. Kabiri has also advocated democracy and rejecting jihadist ideas. And he's increasingly advocated secular democracy as well. That's been uh, prevalent in some of his more, more recent speeches. He's reached a new audience in doing so, particularly young, urban, Western-oriented Muslims, but he's also lost some of the older conservative Hanafis and some of the more hardliners of the 1990s. Uh, in this particular uh, statement here, he says, our ultimate goal is to create a free, democratic, and secular state, which sounds to many in the party as though it's a rejection of some of their original ideas. Indeed, focus groups also suggest that views about, the par about democracy are very divided in Tajikistan. In a plurality of groups, the majority of respondents expressed the need for some sort of Muslim or Islamic democracy. Most, however, also reject the concept of secular democracy. So Kabiri was on shaky grounds both with a party as well as with society more broadly. Notably, however, only a handful of respondents, as you see, actually expressed a preference for an Islamic state. So how, do the, how does the IRPT mobilize? Networks are critical. Tajik society is embedded in an array of informal networks, both religious and non-religious. <coughs> the IRPT was able to draw on these in the, in the 80s and 90s. Some were local, like village, clan, and kin. Others were transcommunal, giving the movement broader reach. So forced migrants, for example, as a result of Soviet economic policies, underground religious study circles, and the Kaziat all had access to trans-local, uh, trans transcommunal networks that increased their mobilization efforts. 
Finally, the IRPs, RIPT's networks shifted somewhat in the 2000s. They had lost the support of the Qazi and his extensive Sufi and uh, mosque networks. They also lost many of the clan and village networks of the hardliners who had broken with the movement because of its uh, rejection of jihad. Yet Kabiri invested in party organization throughout the country that built new networks through mosques and university students and among labor migrants. Turning then briefly to the Uzbek Islamist movements and their mobilization, Adalat and the IMU. In contrast to the IRPT, uh, support for Adalat was far more moderate and was not ultimately durable. Adalat mobilized up to 50,000 in 1991, but unlike the IRPT, uh, Adalat's support dissipated with the regime crackdown. The IMU's membership, despite attempts to build upon Adalat's base, has actually been consistently low. Its height, as we can see, was about 5,000 members in 2005 when it gained a number of recruits after a massive and brutal regime crackdown in Uzbekistan, uh, but its numbers have been dwindling uh, since then. Adalat did have high religious capital um, and especially sacred authority in the Fergana Valley region of Uzbekistan. It was centered around new mosques that were led by several highly respected imams, both Imam Abdubali Kari Mirzoyev uh, and Imam Abidhan Kari Nazarov were educated in the underground hudras of the Soviet era. They accused the communist state of creating a society of ignorance and polytheism, and they called for a return to Islamic purity and to shun national and Soviet traditions. These were all Salafi themes, and they were highly politically charged themes in the Uzbek context. Imam Abid Hankari charged the government with acting against Islam and betraying the faith. The Imams were not openly political activists, but Adalat's protests, led by Tahir Gildash, the young uh, guy over here, uh, were inspired by them. In one public sermon, Abid Hankari even referred to Gildash as our brother. After purging Adalat, President Karimov later cracked down on these Imams as well. Abduvali Kari, uh, labeled up there as a Shahid, uh, disappeared in 1995 in police custody. Abidhan Kari went into hiding after multiple threats and after his home and his library of uh, Islamic uh, uh, texts were bulldozed by the government. Eventually, he turned up having gotten asylum in Sweden, uh, but he barely survived an assassination attempt by the Uzbek government there. Hmm. Notably, many of the Imam's sermons have been posted on YouTube in recent years, and they typically have 75,000 to 100,000 hits. Tahir Yildash and his followers regrouped in Afghanistan, as I've mentioned, and founded the IMU. But it struggled to rebuild Adalat's sacred authority. He didn't have the same level of Islamic education and standing in society. They posted Imam Abdu'l Kari's uh, image and sermons on IMU websites under the title of Shaheed or Martyr. And they were juxtaposed <coughs> to Yildash's sermons advocating jihad against the Uzbek dictator. Over time, Yildash himself uh, engaged in religious study, uh, particularly with radicals in Pakistan, and adopted a more religious appearance, language, and symbols to build up his own sacred authority. He even changed his name to Muhammad Tahir Farooq, or the Redeemer. Yildash's sermons uh, referred continuously to sacred scripture, trying to justify their actions um, and as sanctioned by Islam. I used 34 focus groups throughout different regions of Uzbekistan to assess societal views of Adalats and the IMU's core ideas. 
First, Adalat's ideas shared some congruence with the concerns and identity of Uzbekistani Muslims. There was clearly widespread agreement that society needed an Islamic revival. Soviet repression of Islam was also a widespread grievance. But a far smaller number actually advocated Sharia as state law, and the vast majority wanted the revival of Islam to be national Uzbek Islamic traditions, not a Salafist, Arab, or what people call foreign Islam. Comparison between the uh, Adalat, the IRPT, and the IMU's ideas is revealing. Increasingly militant and radical political ideas are ever-present in the IMU's propaganda machine, focusing on Jews, the Crusaders, Karimov, the Pakistani, Afghan, and US, uh, U.S. governments, emphasizing martyrdom and the caliphate. Videos show images of 9-11 over and over again, and uh, successful IMU attacks on U.S. or uh, NATO forces in Afghanistan. Uh, and tend to, um, uh, have, they've adopted also the, um, the, the flag of the IMU, which is very similar to that of Al-Qaeda and ISIS. The results from my focus groups reveal far lower congruence between society and the IMU's ideas. The theme of Karimov's repression certainly resonated widely with the majority in 80% of the focus groups. Yet the idea of a caliphate has virtually no resonance in Uzbek society. Respondents also discussed specific wars in which the, which the IMU in its literature and propaganda portrays as a necessary jihad for Islam. Some respondents expressed qualified support for the jihad in Afghanistan and somewhat less so for violence in Iraq. Notably, in only 25% of groups did the majority actually think that Palestinians were justified in violence against Israel. This is one of the IMU's kind of core messages. Suicide bombing also had little support, although some respondents did agree that it might sometimes be justified. More typically, respondents, however, referred to suicide bombers as either evil or insane. Finally, networks. Adalat's networks were dense and strong, but typically very localized in the Fergana Valley region. The IMU, by contrast, had no local basis in Uzbekistan, having fled the country. Uh, to broaden their base, they began developing schools and village ties with the <coughs> ethnic Uzbek uh, community uh, in northern Afghanistan, but even this has had fairly limited effect so far. The IMU's low numbers reveal, I think, both lack of ideational congruence with society as well as their lack of either local or translocal networks. So to conclude, I'll sum up the broader theoretical implications of my study. First, neither culture nor rational interest can alone adequately explain uh, Islamism's emergence, mobilization, pattern, and variation in the Central Eurasian cases. Instead, I've shown that the central causal role uh, of, of religious repression and political theology. Both Soviet as well as post-Soviet religious repression politicized Islamic identity and drove the emergence of Islamists in these cases. Islamism in Eurasia has been largely created by the state. As one of my informants said, the government is making extremists. Further, high Islamist mobilization cannot be assumed. I've argued that religious capital, ideational, ideational congruence, and grassroots mobilization and uh, grassroots transcommunal networks all generate higher and more enduring mass mobilization. Finally, in Eurasia, uh, repressive state policy has undermined the potential for the compatibility between Islam and democracy. 
by eliminating the more democratically oriented Islamists like the IRPT, particularly in the post-Civil uh, post War period, the Central Asian states have left little alternative to more radical movements. So far, as we've seen, support for militant jihad has actually been fairly low. But under ongoing state repression of both religion and of, dem of democracy, the possibility, unfortunately, for that to increase does, in fact, remain. So I think I will stop my comments here and uh, just open it up for a discussion. Great. Thank you. We have half an hour for comments and questions. Who would like to begin? Please. I'm, I'm very interested in drawing parallels between um, uh, Islamism in Eurasia and in the Middle East, where it's also been a very effective political movement. One tactic used by repressive regimes in the Middle East to deprive Islamist movements of legitimacy was to out-devout them in policy, capitalizing on public support for Islamic law, for instance. Uh, is there such a parallel in Eurasia? Are the regimes there? Um, trying to capitalize on the religious sentiment of the population to replace those Islamists? Mm -hmm. um, to a large extent, I would say no. Uh, uh, I think one difference between the Middle Eastern cases in general and uh, the Central Asian cases, is uh, Central Eurasian cases more broadly, is this Soviet legacy of animosity towards any element of religion in the public sphere and certainly within the regime. So although on a very superficial level there might be some gestures towards, towards Islam, such as the president's making the Hajj, um, in terms of actual legislation, in terms of recognition of Muslim rights or even a broader space for religious freedom, um, that has not been happening at all. So, so you don't actually have that sort of complicated dynamic that you do have in the Middle East. Thank you. I just want to follow up on the, on the same level. Maybe we can have uh, two paradigms or two ways to, to study uh, Islamist movement. One is within the highly authoritarian regime that excludes systematically any kind of uh, political participation of Islamists. Mm -hmm. And then the more, let's say, half-half, which is a kind of authoritarian regime, but in the same time allow some kind of political participation. And I think the outcome of this kind of participation is different from case to case. So when you totally ban Islamists from, I mean moder uh, moderate Islamists who want to participate in the political process, when you totally ban them, you, you will have the same result as you said. But when you, you will include them, but in the same time try to co-opt them, maybe we'll have a mixed result that we, ca that we saw in the, uh, some Middle Eastern countries. So maybe we can have a dual approach to, to study the Islamist movement. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you for that comment. Yes. Tarek. Uh, thank, thank you so much. Uh, really rich uh, uh, talk and uh, lots of great information. I'm naturally Mike. Yeah. yeah. So, so um, could you go back to one of those slides where you were measuring my second question, but I don't want to forget it. So, <laughs> what I understand the theory to be is a kind of two-stage theory. The first stage is about the emergence of Islamic political movements, mm -hmm. and there, what you're really trying to say is that some unnamed interlocutors out there who 
and saying that Islamist parties emerge for reasons other than Islam are wrong because, in fact, these parties are emerging in response to uh, repression of, uh, of their religion. And I guess I'd say two things. First of all, I don't know anybody who thinks that Islamist parties are not founded by people who take Islam seriously. Of course they are. Um, but then the second point is simply that I think this is a point one of our Moroccan friends in the front row is trying to make, is that there is no Muslim-majority polity, regardless of its stance towards Islam, that doesn't have Islamist parties. So countries that repress Islamists, the way, uh, Islam, sorry, the way that you've described, you get Islamist mobilization. Countries that don't repress Islamists, you get Islamist mobilization. So there is this, there, I think, I, I would, I, I don't, I think the majority of the contribution is not necessarily in emergence, because they emerge everywhere, but it's much more in trying to understand why some of these parties, when they do emerge, are much more powerful than other parties, uh, or mu much more able to sustain themselves. And, you know, you talk about sort of associational um, uh, networks that they're able to draw on, et cetera, all, all very well taken. What I found to be the really new and exciting thing was this measure of ideological congruence with the society. Because what you're saying is that Islamists are only going to succeed if they're moderate, right? If their views are in line with the majority of their populations, right? That seemed to be your story about why the radicals don't do well, because the people don't want them. I thought that was really extraordinary. But then when I look at this data, this is really weird. So help me understand that. It's not weird, it's just I'm cognitively limited. So I thought <laughs> these percentages, so, you know, you know, Islamic support for Islamic policy, 0%. So I'm willing to bet all the money in my limited bank account that there is no Muslim polity in the world where 0% of people will say they support the Islamic caliphate. And in fact, you are not saying that. It sounds like you're saying this is the percentage of, no, but it's not just percentage of participants in the focus groups. It's percentage of focus groups in which a majority said. So for example, all of your focus groups could have had 49% of people saying we love the caliphate, and here it appears as zero. Am I correct? Right, so then my question to you is, why measure it that way? Like, why not actually just tell me the percentage of people in the focus groups that have these views? And that might actually get us a little bit further towards understanding what the congruence or incongruence between mass views and, uh, and party platforms is. But again, this is all really extraordinary. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Yeah, a, a couple of things. Just on this last point, yeah, measuring focus group results, as you might guess, much harder than measuring survey results or where actually my surveys, which I did conduct, uh, two surveys in Kyrgyzstan and two in Azerbaijan, also found an extraordinarily low percentage. I don't remember offhand what it was, but it was less than 5% of the population that supported the caliphate. So this is not a popular idea in the Central Asian state. In the focus groups, just offhand, having read through thousands of pages of these transcripts, I can think of maybe five responses total of about 900 participants where people endorsed the caliphate. Now, I'll further qualify that by saying that, you know, maybe people just don't want to respond in that way. You know, there's a certain level of fear that, of course, you have to take into account here with either focus groups or the survey. Um, but the results of the focus groups, I mean, I presented here in this way in large part because I didn't have a lot of room in the slides to, to present some of the more nuanced comments. Um, but uh, they go along. 
with the broader findings in the survey data, as well as with my findings from the individual interviews, uh, where similarly, there, there's cutting in another slice of society, but again, you have very, very low responses in support of the idea of caliphate. Uh, more typically, you might have some responses supporting some form of an Islamic state. And that concept, of course, is very vague, but um, some form of Sharia law um, is also more typical. Um, but for the most part, people gravitate towards some idea of Muslim democracy or Islamic democracy. Um, Opposition to everything. Um, but uh, that, that's a comment about, about the focus group. But thank you. Yeah, I mean, it would be worthwhile to just go back and tally the actual numbers. Um, it, you know, and that might like, give a sort of more useful perspective. Um, on the, 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 the debate about causes, now, I would say that this probably depends on the different uh, regional literatures that we're working in, uh, as well as. Um, literature, which tends to dismiss the role of religion uh, until, you know, quite recently, really. Um, going back to Ava Bellin's uh, great article on world politics a number of years ago, I think the emphasis among political scientists on the role of religion in causing these movements or in causing support for these movements um, it is really... Right, that, that, I, and I agree with that. <coughs> it's a different point than the point about emergence, right? That's about why the actual, the individual voter might vote for this party that is founded by religious ideologues. That's true. That's where most of the literature yeah. has been in the past few decades. It's, it's on how do we explain support for Islamist parties as opposed to how do we explain emergence of these groups to begin with, which I think there is an older area of studies literature in the Middle East that uh, studies that, that deals with that. On the Central Asian Eurasian cases where all of this is quite new, uh, there has been an enormous um, resistance to acknowledging the role of Islam in any of this. There's an attempt to dismiss it all as it's just nationalism. Um, we have to understand these people were secularized by the Soviet state. They accept the secular state, um, that this is the prevailing norm, and that these Islamist movements are actually, and, and I think Holabur is one of the most prominent in this regard, um, arguing that it's really about, it's really about nationalism, um, and that any sort of political Islam about Islam is actually extremely minimal, um, if at all. So, um, you know, I'm addressing in part that, that literature there. There's also, of course, you know, the tendency among particularly work looking at um, survey data uh, to explain support for Islamist parties or Islamist movements or regime type in general in terms of economic grievances, economic everyday concerns as opposed to religion being part of that. And again, I think there's a big difference between the post-Soviet cases and the Middle East in this regard because so much of this is emerging at the time of the, the Soviet collapse, the Soviet declining collapse in this context where religion has been so brutally suppressed. So I do think that there is going back to your, your points earlier, it's this big difference between the Middle Eastern cases and the post Soviet cases in that regard. Eva. that reliance on uh, social networks, local social networks, is so important to explaining which movements are successful or not. Did I miss an explanation for why some of these movements were successful in, in, in attracting support from social networks and others weren't? Like, what was going on? Why were clans interested in joining up in one country and not another? Mm -hmm. oh. Any thoughts on that? Mm -hmm. I wouldn't say that clans are about the whole unit are necessarily joining Islamists. Uh, but particular individuals like Mul Nari or Kazi Akbar are embedded in extensive kinship, village, and clan networks. So to the extent that they have these, these deep ties in society, they can draw on and use these ties 
period, in large part because entire clans or regions of the country were excluded from political and economic power, in large part because of their religious identity. They were seen as more religious, too religious to be included in uh, forms of political power. Um, so that reinforced um, the, the identity on basis of both clan as well as religion. Same thing within Uzbekistan, the Fergana Valley region in particular, in Malangan, and Andijan, and Margalan, and Kukan, a clan, family, kinship network, were also seen as particularly religious. On that basis, they were then excluded from various forms of political and economic power. So you have the reinforcement of, the, of those, um, those identities over time. Those networks be, you know, existed in the pre-Soviet period, and they became strong in the underground as sort of informal sources of perpetuating identity um, throughout the Soviet period. Yes, go ahead. Yeah. Um, so I think it's pretty amazing uh, the research that you've done and to be able to talk to different groups and leaders. And it's pretty amazing. Uh, so to be able to talk with the different groups, I think it's pretty amazing. And this is uh, great information. I uh, was thinking about the various uh, religious groups uh, that were uh, repressed all throughout the Soviet uh, government. <laughs> and um, in, in this uh, study, it seems that you have um, comments that say from people they would want uh, to have a, an Islamic government, whereas other religious groups haven't asked for that. They do ask to be able to um, um, go with their religious beliefs, but that's where they generally stop, although they might want to have some influence with the secular government, whereas in this case it's very different. Uh, they're looking at, uh, from this data, if I'm interpreting correctly, a religious government. What accounts for that? It seems to me there are other factors besides just the repression because of a comparison with other religions? Yeah, thank you. I guess I would um, take two things. Uh, first of all, we do see a lot of variation in the extent to which they want a religious government. The INU and Adalat are very clear that they want an Islamic state, so the INU is supporting caliphate. Um, and back to your point, <laughs> many of the caliphate supporters are in Afghanistan now. But amongst others in Tajikistan, the vast majority are endorsing a religious influence on a state, religious influence in law, religious influence in education, uh, maybe even religious control of education, but they're not actually specifically endorsing an Islamic state where you have religious control in the government, or the, the government's exhibiting control of the Islamic state or caliphate. So there actually is variation within um, the, the, the broader Muslim community, variation within the religion. And that gets back to multiple different political theologies emerging amongst the Muslim population, just as in, in, in the Christian population. Um, you know, and I think these cases suggest that you get variations on this in, uh, really across the region. Uh, why not other religious groups? Well, in, uh, across this region, Christians are a very small minority. Uh, so in Tajikistan today, it's maybe 1% Christian. Uzbekistan, not more than about 8% Christian. Um, so uh, you know, it's very small, very I see in those 
some of the groups would like, some of the religious groups would like to have uh, their congregants, uh, or whatever term you want to use there, um, uh, have uh, religious schools. They don't really push that hard for it. Whereas here, when I look at these responses, it seems to me that they're pushing very hard for it, and conceivably uh, that they would have an education only through Uh, go ahead, please, and then. Oh, thank you. Um, since this lecture is part of a series called Democracy in Hard Places, I wanted to hear more about democracy, uh, uh, whether or not, in terms of what you found, it, it, uh, that is a justifiable request. But you talked to a lot of these people and conducted focus groups. Is there any... Uh, concern, talk, demand uh, about becoming more democratic. Uh, one gets the impression that uh, Tajikistan has moved closer toward in the direction of democracy so far than Uzbekistan, although who knows what is going to happen under their new president. Uh, I'm wondering what you found and if you could, uh, even if even if you didn't hear much about it, uh, you could tell us what you found. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, I do apologize. I wish I could say more about democracy, but unfortunately, um, in the 25 years or so that I've been studying this region, it's not been going in the right direction. Um, having said that, what I thought was interesting about some of the focus group responses is that there is more support for the idea of democracy in general, um, albeit with a very Muslim or Islamic character today. Certainly in Tajikistan, I think that's the case in Uzbekistan as well. To some extent in Kyrgyzstan, I've found this in both my survey data as well as focus groups. Uh, so there is um, uh, a certain segment of society uh, amongst whom, and you know, certainly a plurality, I think, um, if not an outright majority, among whom the, the concept of democracy is something that they're interested in, that they would like to see. Uh, in terms of actual parties that have, that have successfully pushed for democracy there, I think, 
the only case that had been in the trust region that had made any significant progress towards demography was Kyrgyzstan, um, particularly in the 1990s, and then again with a um, revolution against a particularly corrupt authoritarian state um, in 2010. But again, there's been perpetual backsliding and reversion towards um, a highly corrupt um, authoritarian form of politics. Democracies that uh, people in this area talk about it, saying we might follow their leadership, their example. You know that's that's a question that that most people don't like. They they want to form it their own way. Um, Twenty five years ago, people might have said we're going to follow the Turkish model. Um, that was probably more common than, than other models. Uh, but now, for the most part, they say we want our own Tajik Muslim style democracy. It's again not terribly clear what that means, in large part because they really haven't had the opportunity to show what that means. Even under these highly rigged elections, you know, the IRPP only got a couple of seats in Parliament, and, and the entire system was, was, was very controlled. Uh, and, you know, the, it looked as though post-Civil War, after the peace signing of the peace agreement, that the, that the Tajik Islamic Party, as well as some of the, the Democratic parties, might have a chance to flourish, but that What I do think is hopeful, however, is that the IRPP did manage to keep something of a base together, engaging in peaceful confiscation of elections, even under these periods of very rigged electoral system, in the hopes that eventually um, it would push, um, push the regime towards greater democratization. The last couple of years, however, have seen a really negative, um, negative turn across the region. Much of that has been driven by fear of ISIS, um, again, across, broadly across the region, whether we're talking about Azerbaijan or Kazakhstan or Kyrgyzstan, the regime has used the specter of ISIS as a, and, and also following the Arab Spring as a reason to crack down on any sort of opposition, labeling any opposition as Islamist extremist terrorist. So the hope for democracy at the current moment, I think, is um, unfortunately not good. Thanks, Kathleen. I, um, like, like Tarek, I found this incredibly your, your research in this part of the world is fantastic. Um, I was also interested in your idea of ideational congruence. I have a slightly different um, question about it. And that is the assumption of a kind of a fixed exogenous um, public opinion strikes me as a little unusual. Um, it would seem to me that some of that congruence would be endogenous to the other forms of mobilizational capacity that these groups have or whether they've helped to establish order or done goods charity or, I mean, I could just, or, or kids go to religious schools if they've been opened or allowed to function. Maybe parties can't function, but, or, you know, on a level playing field, but maybe there's a little bit more room for religious practice. I'm just, it's a, first of all, it's a genuine question about whether ideational congruence is correlated with something else that you've found, some of your other factors. Um, but then secondly, it seems to me an, a way of testing this empirically is you sound, I think I heard you say you did focus groups at two different periods in time. And I'd be really interested in whether there was a stability of opinion in the focus groups over the, between those two periods. Yeah. It's, it's difficult to capture that, as, as you might expect, when, when the 
type of data you have are focus groups, interviews, and surveys, which are inevitably a snapshot from a period of time. Um, the other factor that complicates this, of course, is that um, it was harder to do the focus groups in 2010 than in 2005. Society was more open to talking about these issues across the region uh, in, in the earlier period. Uh, as the regime became more and more repressive, um, really, again, across the region, um, over time, it was harder to even talk about uh, the issue of democracy in 2010. So, uh, you know, as you may have noticed, I didn't, didn't uh, put up the uh, about democracy in Uzbekistan in 2010 because I couldn't get enough people who were willing to actually discuss it. <laughs> so, um, which doesn't suggest that they, they don't agree with the concept of democracy, but that this was a very taboo and yeah, issue in talk Uzbekistan at that time, and I didn't yeah. want to breach a line that you know that, that I knew I couldn't. Um, so, it's it's difficult to capture that over time. I think probably um, the the, the survey data that I have from Azerbaijan and Kyrgyzstan gets at that somewhat better, where society was a little bit more open, also I, I, I did um, carry out surveys there. And uh, if, I, if I recall the, the figures over time, there weren't dramatic changes. Um, uh, you know, I think there was still sort of plurality of society that favors some sort of idea of democracy. There was also a strong segment in both those countries that favors some sort of idea of Muslim democracy. Um, they favor Islamic education. Now, I don't have great uh, survey data, much less any focus group data, to compare it with the early 90s, uh, but there was actually a survey done um, by, uh, several surveys done by USAA um, on a couple of these questions in the early 1990s, and um, there was also broad support, this is again before Karimov's big crackdown, there was broad support for the idea of an Islamic party in the early 1990s, um, which was interesting. So I think it suggests that having a more Greater presence for religion in, in politics and society it has been has been pretty stable over time. Okay. Um, so th there is there is certainly some evidence of that. But, um, but yeah, what, what welcome suggestions as to how to kind of flesh out that that ideational congruence because I'm, I'm not assuming that it's fixed. I mean, it's certainly a, a, a dynamic process. Uh, um, but how you actually sort of measure that? Well, the, the only one other suggestion I might make, depending on what's in your surveys, even if that is a snapshot, even if you can't to that time, is simply if there, if you have any, um, if you can in any way tease out the variation of responses that you get on similar questions. If you asked any of the similar questions in surveys about whether they support a jihad by Palestinians or a, a caliphate or whatever, um, and if you can find sources of whether where their socialization was or what clan they belong to. I mean, I don't know what the whether or not they are a member of the Islamic party, whatever the factors might be. If you can use variation in the survey to then go back and find what those factors might be, then you might be able to use that to gauge something where where how this opinion's being shaped alongside the the mobilization of uh, of the of the, par the party's capacity to mobilize. We probably have time for two last questions, and two people have been interested to ask. So let's first hear from you. I know you're from this region, so we'll look forward to your question or comment. Um, hi. Thank you very much for your research. Uh, I wanted to ask, uh, I do apologize, I walked in late. You might have addressed that in the beginning. Uh, so you focus on two out of five Central Asian republics. Uh, 
Kyrgyzstan and Kazakhstan have historically had more liberal form of uh, Islam, so it's a separate story. But Turkmenistan culture is very similar to Tajikistan. It's like settle, settlers' uh, culture, where Islam was historically very dominant, and it's one of the most oppressive regimes, probably even more oppressive than Uzbekistan. Yet no apparent um, indication of Islamist movement rising in the, our country. So how would you... Uh, address based on your research and also the factors that you listed. Um, second question I wanted to ask is uh, if you by any chance had an opportunity to already assess the perception of Mirziyoyev after Karimov who was covered in your uh, research has passed away. So what, what is the Islamist uh, perception of the new authorities in um, Uzbekistan? And uh, the last question relates to um, the, uh, whether your research have covered the labor migrants, which in specifically in case of Uzbekistan and Tajikistan is roughly 40% of adult male popula uh, overall population, and majority of uh, adult males are abroad permanently, pretty much permanently for years in Russia, and where, uh, according to some reports, uh, Islamist movement are actually uh, quite successful. And our Imam Nazarov, uh, UNHCR has resettled a large community of refugees from other Central Asian countries where they fled, but they are originally from Uzbekistan, to Nazarov to Sweden. So what is their influence and what, like, have any, has anyone been researching what they are doing, especially after the attempted assassination of Imam Nazarov? Thank you very much. Um, on the question of Turkmenistan, uh, you may have walked in after this, but what I argue is essential, essential underlying condition for any type of to emerge as a movement is at least some degree of associational space. And I think we virtually have not in Afghanistan. I mean, there's been virtually no change of anything that's more repressive than, than in the Soviet era, um, or even more repressive than under Brezhnev and, and in the Gorbachev era. So, so I would argue that that largely explains why you haven't had any type of Islamist organizational opposition going on there. Um, one caveat to that is that in some recent data that I've seen on uh, ISIS fighters, Turkmenistan actually has the largest per capita number of ISIS fighters or troops from hmm. Central Asia, which is interesting. So they're not mobilizing within Turkmenistan, they're, but they're, some are going abroad. And again, probably through live of, of migrant labor networks, and from there being recruited from Moscow or other places um, to join ISIS. So it's uh, Turkmenistan first, and then uh, Tajikistan, and then Uzbekistan. Um, and interestingly, they have, across the region, it's, it's considerably higher than a number of Middle Eastern states. Um, <coughs> that is quite interesting. Um, on your Ziyayev, um, it is, I, I think the, the, you know, my, my judgment is still out on, on whether or not he's really reforming or not. He's done some good things economically. Uh, in terms of the Islamist opposition, I don't think he's done anything really to appease them yet. Uh, as far as I know, he has not yet released uh, any so he has released a handful of journalists and secular democratic opposition leaders, but not religious prisoners, of whom there are still some 13,500 wow. in each prisons. Um, so the vast majority of political prisoners are actually religious prisoners. Um, on the question of labor migrants, yeah, I did uh, specifically uh, uh, have several focus groups in Uzbekistan and Tajikistan that included labor migrants, or that specifically um, organized around labor migrants. And I didn't find uh, I actually expected to find a higher support for political Islam amongst uh, those 
groups, but I did not actually find that. So, uh, whereas, you know, much of the media has reported that the recruiting is going on amongst those migrants, and I believe that certainly is possible because there's simply more opportunity to do that, you know, from Moscow or Turkey uh, or Kazakhstan, you know, than there is in Uzbekistan or Tajikistan, but I, I'm not finding that that's a broad And uh, on Iman Nazarov and the Uzbek migrants in Sweden, I have not had the opportunity yet to, to actually uh, go there and interview um, the libraries there. Uh, but from my uh, my sense of the, the online chat about Nazarov's death, there's certainly um, uh, sorry, uh, uh, Nazarov's assassination attempt. Uh, there's certainly a lot of discontent amongst the Uzbek immigrants in, uh, in Sweden and other places uh, still against the. And the last question. Yeah. Right. Uh, I to ask, did your respondents ask any questions about religious tolerance in general, whether or not there were other residual religions that were left in that area after the Soviet experience, and also uh, any consciousness of Shia movements in any other countries? This is for us, the food. Okay. Well, we get to have a reception now, and um, so we'll carry on a bit longer. There's some food and there are some drinks out there. Um, so this will give us a chance to carry on the conversation, but more informally. Thank all of you for coming, and thank you so much. You've been listening to AshCast, the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovations podcast. If you'd like to learn more, please visit ash.harvard.edu or follow the Ash Center on social media at Harvard Ash.